Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Vaselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the president had some pretty strong words for the Department of Veterans Affairs and the treatment delays at the Phoenix VA Hospital, which led to 40 preventable deaths. The president saying last week that he will not stand for any misconduct at the nation's VA hospitals. Well, he called the allegations of patient delays for care and cover-up of these mishandled cases akin to dishonorable conduct and said that any VA employees who manipulated medical records will be held accountable. Now there's a comprehensive review underway. Some 26 VA hospitals across the country where similar issues have arisen. For now, the president's continuing to support the VA secretary, Eric Shinseki. And he notes that many of these issues are systemic and longstanding and can't be pinned entirely on the most recent VA secretary. You know, Margaret, uh, while so many new initiatives have been launched at the VA, like the Blue Button Initiative to make medical records easily accessible for patients and providers alike, it's still a large, diverse patient population with a heavy burden of complex medical, behavioral health, and social issues. And with the influx of additional veterans over the past decade of war, the strain on the system has only increased. Well, I think you're right, Mark, and and certainly we're used to seeing some very good news out of the VA in terms of quality, particularly in the primary care arena. But, you know, the White House has been doing much to improve the lot of veterans with the Joining Forces campaign to strengthen military families with increased support systems, including in behavioral health and education and employment opportunities. I think a real commitment to the cause of veterans and their families, and I suspect that this targeted review of the underperforming VA hospitals in the long run will strengthen the VA. I think you're right. And while uh, we're on the topic of military and health care, Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Undersecretary for Health at the Department of Defense, announced recently that telemedicine was going to become far more utilized at garrisons here and deployment sites around the world to improve the care being provided to military and the communities they serve around the world. Well, he was keynoting at the recent American Telemedicine Association gathering and saying that American forces are increasingly coming to the aid of disaster areas around the world and a sound telemedicine infrastructure will facilitate the care that's delivered to those populations who often have immediate and critical health care needs that just have to be met. Our guest today has been in the trenches of care delivery in clinics around the country, especially where populations are underserved and social conditions are negatively impacting health outcomes. Sonia Sarker is the Chief of Staff of Health Leads, an organization that partners with healthcare organizations and seeks to assist their patients in eliminating the social determinants that lead to poor health, lack of access to decent nutrition, poor housing, unemployment. Their organization is yielding some very interesting results around the country in terms of improved outcomes for patients by helping patients meet some of their basic needs. We look forward to hearing from Sonia as well as Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, who stops by to correct another misstatement about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. If you have comments, please email us at CHC Radio or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Sonia Sarker in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 
A one-year reprieve for hospitals and practices trying to get up to speed with meaningful use of electronic health records. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid announced that practices and hospitals struggling to graduate from Stage 1 to Stage 2 of meaningful use would get another year. Many practices complaining they were experiencing delays with implementation of the 2014 standards. Although 2014 edition technology is available for adoption, there is a backlog of many months for the updated version to be installed and implemented. The one-year delay will give these practices more flexibility, according to CMS officials. Seven healthcare workers who were exposed to the second American to present with symptoms from the Middle Eastern MERS virus have been cleared to go back to work. The clinicians, including one physician, had exposure to the patient. They were cleared to go back to work after tests determined they weren't carrying the virus, though they will continue to be tested. Speaking of viruses, should testing patients for HPV replace the typical pap smear? The thinking is testing a woman for presence of HPV virus, the primary cause of cervical cancer, will provide an earlier window into those at risk, and pap smears can often provide insufficient screening. Opponents of the HPV testing warn many women carry the HPV virus and never present with cervical cancer, so it would unnecessarily worry many women. There's an effort underway to develop interim guidelines for how to use the HPV test for cervical cancer screening. Those guidelines, groups say, could come as early as this summer. And another reason to tuck your toddler in for a decent night of shut-eye? A recent study shows a direct correlation between insufficient sleep in toddlerhood and belly fat later on. In a study released in the journal Pediatrics, Boston researchers looked at 1,000 children between the ages of 6 months and 2 years. They measured the body mass index, or BMI, of all these children at the age of 7 and found those who'd received less than optimal sleep had higher BMIs and, more important precursor to a poor health later on, more belly fat. According to the National Sleep Foundation, the optimal amount of sleep for toddlers is 12 to 14 hours a day, including nap time. The study showed that after adjusting for factors including parental income, education, and TV habits, a 7-year-old who got less than 12 hours of sleep between the ages of 6 months and 2 years had 36% higher odds of being obese than a child who got more sleep as a small child. Gritty news from the college gridiron at the University of Oklahoma. A study of college football players compared to those who never had a concussion and then compared to students who'd never played football showed the college-level players who'd taken at least one or more hits had significant differences in brain configuration. Those who suffered one or more concussions had a hippocampus region that was noticeably smaller, about 25% smaller in most cases. The study suggests even limited brain injury can have lasting impact on the brain. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Sonia Sarkar, Chief of Staff of Health Leads, a national organization dedicated to building a different kind of healthcare which addresses all patients' basic resources needs as a standard part of quality care. Ms. Sarkar co-founded Health Leads Baltimore site, serving as a program coordinator as well as on the National Board of Directors. She has worked for the Baltimore City Health Department as a Merrill Fellow and is also a recipient of the Rotary Cultural Ambassadorial Scholarship. Ms. Sarkar is founding board member for the Boston Young Healthcare Professionals and HealthWorks Foundation's Young Professionals. Ms. Sarkar has earned numerous distinctions, including being named a young global shaper by the World Economic Forum. She earned her BA and master's degree in public health at Johns Hopkins University. Sonia, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, everyone is talking about social determinants of health, but actually Health Leads is doing something about it. And 
in a difficult environment because the healthcare industry is really not designed or equipped to address the many causes of poor health in the population, like diet and housing and transportation. Tell us about Health Leads and its dedication to the idea that one day all healthcare providers will be doing more than just managing disease. Share with our listeners more about your organization. Well, one of the challenges of our current healthcare system is that it isn't designed to deliver health. Every day we have physicians and other members of the clinical team across the country who are prescribing antibiotics, for example, only to discover that the real issue is that there isn't enough food at home or that the family is living in a car. And in these situations, of course, the patients return back to the healthcare system with yet more serious illnesses that are even more expensive to the healthcare system. So HealthLights is really born of conversations that our founder, Rebecca Oney, had with physicians that was then Boston City Hospital in the mid-90s when she was a sophomore in college. And in those conversations and in thousands since then, we heard clinicians tell us again and again, you know, every day I have patients that come to the clinic waiting room and they present with a health issue, but I know that the underlying factor is the reality of their patients' lives. And Health Leads is really based on uh, the idea that you can do something about that. So in the clinics where we operate, physicians and other members of the clinical team can prescribe basic resources that patients need to be healthy things like food, heat, childcare, and the patients can then take that prescription into the clinic waiting room where our well-trained core of college student advocates will work side by side with them to connect them out to the existing landscape of community resources. Well, Sonia, we are so fascinated by this model that's been created at Health Leads and certainly the uh, very popular TED Talk that your founder, Rebecca mm-hmm. Oni, did, I think has helped bring the message uh, to a much larger audience. But in it, she talked about building a team of elite volunteers, as elite as any winning college sports team. I, I love that analogy. And <laughs> and said that these college students could be mobilized all across the country with partner healthcare organizations to provide what you could call waiting room interventions as opposed to the exam room intervention. So you began your career with Health Leads as one such volunteer in Baltimore while a student at Hopkins. Tell us about these elite volunteers you know, what are they in in magnitude across the country or potential magnitude? And Mm -hmm. what are the qualifications, personal or professional or technical, that you think are the most important in finding the right kind of Health Leads member? So we have a cohort of about a thousand college student advocates across the country. And what we're really looking for uh, as qualifications in our advocates are the same things that you would want anytime you have someone that's about to engage in a difficult conversation with a patient. So above all, a very strong sense of tenacity, someone with passion about not just serving patients, but really looking at the larger picture of how serving that patient could create a larger change within the healthcare system. And specifically, the question that we often get is, why college students? You know, why have you chosen this cohort um, of folks who are pre-professional and who haven't yet embarked on their careers? And for us, there's a couple of reasons that that's really the case. And this is where the analogy of the college sports team comes in. And that's that we're looking for folks who are, uh, you know, sort of pervasive in their uh, retrieval of information on behalf of patients. This is a generation that has grown up on Google and knows how to track down any phone number for any food pantry in any community. They're also unwilling to take no for an answer, which is especially important when you're thinking about the logistical and linguistic and transportational barriers that come with a lot of the social services that we connect patients out to. And lastly, the reason that we're really looking at this cohort is because you're catching folks at a time in their development where everything really makes 
makes a lasting impression. And these alumni, these advocates go on to become alumni who have a very distinct impression of how healthcare should be delivered. When they end up at a clinic or a hospital five or 10 years down the line, they look around and they say, I want to be able to provide care for my patients that's actually responsive to the social factors in their lives. And that's really what we're looking for in those advocates that we choose are people who will become those future champions. Well, I know we uh, use the AmeriCorps uh, workers, and uh, we find that their being informed by our model of care is so important to their development. So you're, you're certainly on the right track. And pull the thread a little more on that, the process that goes on. Again, uh, it's the provider who's prescribing the food and the health right. and the child care. Uh, and then the patient's out uh, with the uh, health leads advocate. And, uh, right. you know, how, how does that all work uh, for the patient? What are the great success stories you have to tell about how it might have changed the trajectory of someone's life and their health. Well, one of the things we've been really intentional about doing is looking at the core elements of the patient experience and the clinic workflow and thinking about how to appropriate that for the cause of health rather than just medical care. One of the things that we want to be careful not to do is add a lot of extra things onto what's already going on within a busy clinic. And so we looked at things like the prescription pad, a screening tool that you might get when you first walk into the clinic, integrating data about patient social needs into the electronic medical record and we said, okay, how do we reappropriate those for the purpose of connecting patients out to resources? And so when I was an advocate at the Harriet Lane Clinic, which is a pediatric clinic at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, I remember one of the cases that I encountered was a mom who had come in to the pediatrics clinic and was talking with her pediatrician about how her son had just been to the emergency room for the third time that month due to lead poisoning. And, you know, she was so exasperated with the condition of her home and the fact that she was unable to enable her uh, kids to really escape from that environment. And what was key about that encounter is that the physician had in front of her a screening tool that the patient had filled out saying, yes, I need help finding safe housing. And that really triggered a conversation that the two of them were able to be in. And then the physician was able to make a seamless referral uh, to Health Leads where I was able to sit down with the patient, hear her story, and talk to her about what she was experiencing. And from that, we were able to jump right in and get the family access to a voucher uh, for lead abatement, as well as address a whole host of other factors like access to healthy food that was really impacting the family at that point in time. Well, Sonia, your motto at Health Leads is better health, one connection at a time. And since the program was started in 1996, you've made thousands, probably tens of thousands of connections between, I think, Health Leads and patients and their families, but also between those families and resources in their Mm -hmm. communities. And the system continues to evolve. So I understand that you've been getting quite a bit of attention for your Client Connect program that you launched last fall, which is a digital platform that facilitates the search for resources. And certainly anybody who has seen those three ring binders of mimeographed Mm -hmm. or photocopied sheets of resources wonders, how helpful is this? How do I know that's a good resource? Is it even still around? What's different about what you're doing with Client Connect and how is it helping patients and any sense of metrics or outcomes from that Mm -hmm. program? For us, Client Connect really represents taking advice that a physician or a nurse or a social worker gives in the clinic and making it actionable. So technology, of course, is something that can accelerate the encounter between our advocates and the patient. And we thought a lot about how do we create a technology platform that's just 
so intuitive that it makes that encounter as seamless as possible. So last year, uh, we served 11,400 families utilizing the Client Connect database. This year, we'll serve just a little bit over 14,000. And one of the things that has been really incredible to see is the huge improvements in efficiency that we've been able to gain through deploying the this technology platform. So just a quick example, our average intake time for a client has been cut in half from 20 minutes to 10 minutes, which then allows our advocates to serve more patients in less time. We did an hour-long side-by-side comparison of our student advocates using Client Connect uh, versus our prior resource system and found that they were able to update five times more resources than their peers. And this database that we've put together now includes over 8,700 resources, which is really, I think, a, a comprehensive snapshot of the community resource landscapes that we're operating in. So. For us, the, you know, the technology platform serves multiple purposes, everything from making that encounter you know, really easy and, um, and efficient for the patient, but also has a lot to do with creating the data and generating the analytics that we're going to need in order to really make the case for this work going forward. We're speaking today with Sonia Sarkar, Chief of Staff of Health Leads, a national organization dedicated to building a different kind of healthcare in this country, which addresses all patients' basic resource needs as a state standard part of quality care. Sonia, you're one of our country's young leaders, and you've gained attention from lots of organizations about your work in the sort of global health space. Uh, you were a Rotary Ambassador Scholarship uh, recipient, brought you to Costa Rica. You've worked uh, with the World Economic Forum, groups of young, as they call them, global shapers. And, you know, a lot of what makes people successful is that they're great at imagining things that don't exist. But in your case, you are able to go out and see things that are existing in other people's minds and other cultures. Tell us how you've connected those back to the work that you're doing at Health Leads or how it's helped build uh, your thinking process. Absolutely. One of the things that we think about a lot at Health Leads is how do we examine what best practices already exist either in the domestic health sphere or very specifically in the global health sphere that we can then bring back and operationalize with our populations as well. And speaking of global health, there's a great uh, Haitian proverb that Partners in Health often uses that really resonates with our work, which is that giving drugs without food is like washing your hands and drying them in the dirt. And I think this concept is uh, one that has been a core part of a lot of global health programs for decades. Um, the idea that you really have to grapple with the social context that patients are living in before you can really make traction on health outcomes. So what we've done at HealthLeads is apply the same concept to many of our neighborhoods here in the United States, which unfortunately are often privy to even poorer health outcomes in patients in low or middle income countries. And so specifically, uh, we've honed in on this idea of reverse innovation. So when you look at global health programs that have been very successful, often what they're doing is expanding the definition of healthcare provider, healthcare product, healthcare place, or in some cases, healthcare payment. And hopefully it has uh, also latched onto um, looking at the expansion of each of those definitions within the United healthcare, States healthcare system, whether it's looking at a lay workforce to work with patients, whether it's expanding the product of healthcare to go beyond medical care to addressing social needs as well, or whether it's looking at the place where healthcare is administered, taking it out of the exam room and into the community and in the clinic waiting room. So there have been a lot of great innovations and lessons learned from the global health sphere that we've really been able to apply to our work as well. 
Well, Sonia, I think another fitting uh, descriptor for you and Rebecca and your colleagues at Health Leads would certainly be social entrepreneurs. And as I listen and, and become so excited by the work that you're doing, think about the size of the college student population uh, mm-hmm. and the need for the service all across the country. The two words that really are first in front of my mind are scalability and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that uh, it's really philanthropic or social investment or social investment bond kind of model of uh, sustainability. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about future sustainability and scalability to really reach much deeper into that market and mm-hmm. uh, also penetrate more deeply across the country. Yeah. HealthLead's ultimate vision is that the healthcare system addresses patients' basic resource needs as a standard part of quality care. And so what we are laser-focused on is thinking about the different levers that we have to pull within the healthcare system to make that vision a reality. And so, as you are mentioning, Margaret, we're not just interested in serving patient after patient, although that's, of course, a core part of our work and something that we will continue to do going forward. But we're also thinking quite a bit about what will it take for the healthcare system to come to accept this as a standard part of care. And an underlying piece of that is, of course, demonstrating the value to the healthcare system and to healthcare institutions specifically of moving the needle on patient social needs. So currently, HealthLeads is funded through a combination of philanthropic dollars as well as earned revenue from our partner healthcare institutions. And three quarters of HealthLeads partner institutions pay some or all of the costs of the program. And what we've been working uh, very closely with our partners on is trying to show that HealthLeads can have an effect on metrics that really matter to healthcare institutions, especially given the larger trends at play within the healthcare system. So one example of this is we recently uh, launched an evaluation at an academic medical center here in Boston that's looking at the impacts that health leads could have uh, on patient satisfaction. Now that uh, more and more patients, especially low-income patients, are getting covered under the Affordable Care Act, they're starting to gain some agency around where they could receive their care. And as a result, healthcare institutions are really trying to understand how do we build loyalty and retention amongst that specific patient population so that they come back. And one of the elements of building that loyalty is ensuring that patients are actually satisfied with the services that they're getting and that it meets their needs. So that's just one example of how we think about long-term sustainability within the system is building this case and providing proof points to our partners and to other stakeholders within the healthcare system that this is something that uh, can really become a core part of care delivery. Hmm. So pulling the thread a little there, so value-added proposition that will hopefully influence from private payers to Medicaid and the like. Walk back a little and talk about the educational system and what you're doing on there, because you really have to establish it as a model of care. And all of us have been thinking long and hard about how you reframe the the work of primary care. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you thinking about it, integrating it right in into the medical schools and, and trying to embed this into the next generation? Absolutely. Well, one of the great assets that we have at Health Leads is our core of of uh, 4,000 alumni who graduate from the program and go out into the system with a very um, distinct point of view on how social determinants of health should be talked about. And, you know, our alumni are just one example, I think, of many of the stakeholders in the healthcare system that are starting to be in a conversation around how primary care and other elements of care should be redesigned. So what we've done at HealthLeads is we've really taken a look at the different movements that are being made on care delivery models and said, 
how can we integrate into these efforts that are already taking place? So a great example of this is the movement towards patient-centered medical homes, for example, which is uh, not something that is necessarily new, but certainly something that um, has has gained increasing resonance over the, the past couple of months. And we said, okay, for a patient-centered medical home, for an institution to qualify at the level three version of being a PCMH institution, which then allows them to get the maximum amount of reimbursement for patient, uh, they have to show that they actually track uh, their patient's social needs and have uh, some sort of inventory of community resources that they can refer those patients out to. And often when we talk to institutions that are thinking about this, that can seem like a really complex process. How do you go about doing that needs assessment and building that resource database? So HealthLeads has worked with six of our current um, healthcare institution partners to enable them to apply for that PCMH status. And we're seeing that Enabling them to meet that one criteria really goes a long way in how they think about the program being integrated into the rest of their clinic workflow. We've been speaking today with Sonia Sarkar, Chief of Staff of Health Leads, a national organization dedicated to building a different kind of healthcare, one which addresses all of patients' basic resource needs as a standard part of quality care. You can follow her on Twitter by going to at SARSonia, S-A-R-S-O-N-I-A, and learn more about their work by going to healthleadsusa.org. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thanks so much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, there's a new viral email going around that claims under the Affordable Care Act, Medicare will not pay anything for seniors receiving observation care in hospitals. Not true. Medicare will pay a significant portion of observation care after co-pays and deductibles. Nothing has changed because of the health care law. This email is written in the form of a letter from a senior gentleman from Mesa, Arizona, who gives his name as only Roger. Roger says that two doctors confirmed his claim about Medicare and observation services, but his claim is false. Doctors can place patients under observation to determine if they should be admitted or discharged, a decision that's normally made in 48 hours. Admitted inpatient costs are covered under Medicare Part A after a deductible is met for the year, but observation care is treated as outpatient care, covered under Medicare Part B. Costs of observation care are covered, too, after a copay and deductible are met, but seniors receiving observation care as outpatients could end up paying more than those admitted as inpatients. Also, follow-up care at a skilled nursing facility is only covered under Medicare if a senior was in a hospital was a hospital inpatient for at least three nights. These are legitimate issues for seniors. The use of observation care in hospitals has increased in recent years, leading to higher-than-expected costs for some. The nonpartisan Center for Medicare Advocacy has been tracking the observation care issue since at least the year 2000, but it has nothing to do with the Affordable Care Act. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com 
We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Smoking continues to be the number one preventable cause of premature death in this country, leading to over 440,000 deaths per year. And while quitting remains a challenge to most smokers, the tobacco industry continues to spend billions of dollars on promotion and lobbying. A new study released by the International Tobacco Control Policy Evaluation Project shows that putting graphic warning labels on the outside of cigarette packs leads to significant reduction in the number of smokers. There are some images of a dissected brain that has you know, a bloody spot that apparently is something from stroke. There's one that has a heart on it that uh, reminds people about the relationship between cigarettes and heart attack. Dr. Jeffrey Fong of the University of Waterloo in Canada conducted the study analyzing Canada's smoking cessation rates from the year 2000, when Canada began ordering that a third of the cigarette pack be reserved for graphic images of diseased hearts and blackened lungs through 2009. The data showed a marked decrease in the number of smokers during that time, attributed largely to the presence of the graphic images in conjunction with strict smoking laws. And what we found was that there was a sharp decline in the smoking rates after the warning labels compared to before. And we compared it to that same period of time in the United States where there was no change in warning labels. And it showed that the decline in smoking rates after the warning labels in Canada were much greater than for that same period of time in the United States where there was no change. Based on the Canadian numbers, Fong and his colleagues estimate that a similar program in the U.S. would lead to a dramatic reduction in the number of smokers here, as has been shown in Canada and other countries around the world who have initiated a similar practice. The relative reduction was between 12 and 20 percent. Placing graphic images of body parts that have been damaged and diseased by smoking providing a visual deterrent to regular smokers and a graphic visual warning to young people considering smoking, something that could potentially lead to millions of Americans quitting and very likely prolonging their lives. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.